So how are you doing? Yeah, good. Yeah. How are you doing? Yeah, I've been better. Um, yeah, you don't sound that well. Yeah, I have a cold. I've had that for a couple of days, though. That's not really a surprise. But uh, let's see. So earlier today, I well, I guess this story starts last night. <laughs> uh, and this, the, my illness may be a fault of my own gluttony. Mm-hmm. Because uh, we went and got Chinese food at this restaurant called Han Dynasty, which is a very good restaurant. Is this going to be like an anti-MSG screed? No. Uh, and I ate a bunch of food there. And um, we went to the theater, and I got a popcorn, a large popcorn, uh, to see The Kitty Would Be King, the film we're going to talk about on this episode uh, of this podcast, which the podcast is called Project A+, if you didn't already know. Um and I ate most of that bucket by myself. <laughs> um, so, as is probably not a surprise, uh, I woke up a bunch of times last night with a stomach ache. And then this morning we were planning on going to a uh, escape room. Whoa. Which I, I assume you know what that is. I do know what that is. Uh, another really funny thing that happened at that escape room is that my friend did not understand how record players work, right? A vinyl, a vinyl record. Vinyl record player, yeah. And so uh, I was like, oh, well, because there's like a record that was playing music, right? And I was like, I don't know if that's a clue or not, so uh, you should take the needle off and then put it back on at the start. <laughs> and uh, do you know what he did to take the needle off? What? He uh, scratched across the, the oh. record, <laughs> which is really funny. Having a, having a vinyl record as part of the escape room, they probably have tons of backup. Yeah, yeah, ones, probably. So. But still, that's funny. Uh, the best part was it wasn't even like part of the escape room. It was just like ambiance, so we just ruined a classical. Oh, really? Yeah. It didn't have any. Yeah, didn't, didn't have, have any, any significance. Nope. So <laughs> that's pretty. It's pretty good. Um, so a bit of tragedy, a bit of humor. That's escape rooms for me. I mean, that line's not going to make sense if I cut out that. <laughs> yeah, I know, but yeah. you should include it anyway. But um, I'll include it. Thank you. Uh, but uh, so we went to this escape room. I woke up this morning. I was just like, I don't feel that great, but you know. I already paid like $30 to go here, so I'm going to tough it up and go through it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we hopped on the train going downtown, and over the course of it, my girlfriend and her roommate were like chatting, and I was just sort of like standing there, and I was like, uh, I'm not feeling so great. <laughs> and then, uh, uh, so eventually, when we got closer to the stop, we were going to transfer trains on, I was like, you know what, because we're, we we're standing up because the train was still full, I, I was like, you know what, I need to like sit down, so I started like crouched down in the middle of the subway car. <laughs> Um, and <laughs> thankfully I was able to control myself long enough to run outside of the train when the trains pulled to a stop and vomited in one of the, uh, ubiquitous, um, subway trash cans. So <laughs> that was my day. And I think it might've sounded something like this. <laughs> you just include that bit from, uh, back to the future. It's like that new sound you're looking for. This is it. It's vomit. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if I seem... Uh, less co- coherent than normal, which I know is challenging a challenge uh, to to be less than my typical coherence. Uh, I is because of illness. So there you go. <laughs> what if you seem more coherent than normal? Then I would make myself sick in order to make the podcast better. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I can't imagine your viewing of the film was any better than that. I had some popcorn. Uh, when I went to see The Kid Who Would Be King. What? Really? Mm. That mm-hmm. seems like a lavish expenditure that you would typically not indulge in. I know, I usually don't, um, but I, I did this time. I was like, fuck it, I'm going to treat myself. 
Was it? It wasn't very good though. It was like underwhelming popcorn. No, neither was my popcorn. Actually, it was very. Uh, some of the kernels were good, but a lot of it was like sort of half popped. It was gross. And mine didn't have enough seasoning. It wasn't strong enough. I like overpowering, like butter, cheesy, sort of salty seasoning. That's gross. <laughs> I don't want. Don't you have like, like self-service that. seasoning things? No, I know that's a thing uh, in America. I don't think it, that happens here. It's a shame. At least as far as I'm aware, I haven't come across okay. any... So, uh, have we introduced ourselves? I don't remember. I'm Hunter, you're Hugh. Yeah, we did it. Um, so, what are we going to talk about on this here episode of the podcast? Uh, today we'll be looking at Joe Cornish's second feature film as director, The Kid Who Would Be King, which follows uh, his first film, Attack the Block, eight years previously. Although he, in the interim, he did work as a writer on various projects. Like Ant-Man. Like Ant-Man, and also the Tintin movies. Uh, the Tintin movie. <laughs> the only Tintin movie that's been made. I thought there was more than one. Nope. Are you sure? Yeah. I'm looking up. They announced there'd be a sequel that never has come out yet. Well, let's see about that. Okay, let's see about <laughs> it. You're gonna look like a fucking egg on your face. So he's done some writing work, but this is the second film as a director. Second feature week film as a director. Yes. Um, I have never seen his debut film, Attack the Block, but I, it is much acclaimed in genre circles. And if I remember correctly, you uh, think it's okay or good. I don't remember. You it's were good. Not it's positive. Good, like... or you're, no, you're positive about it. Yeah, it's good. I recommend it. But we're not talking about it the movie about the clown today, we're talking about The Kid Who Would Be King. Ah. Which is a movie about a kid who would be king. summary for it so let's just do one of our uh, classic uh, imdb riffs how does that sound yeah uh there's a kid named alex who's played by andy circus's son that's right louis uh, ashbourne circus so fucking some fucking nepotism going on there mm-hmm. um and yes he is a child <laughs> how old is he like 12 yeah whatever say 12 he's 12 uh he is starting in i don't know what you call it primary school <laughs> What I would refer to as high school, I think. But anyway, so he's starting high school or whatever. Uh, he's kind of an outcast. He has his friend, whose name is Betters. Um, his uh, friend. They're kind of dweebs, but he has a good heart. Um, they're terrorized by two boys, one of whose named Kay and the other one who's named Lance. Um, and they're, they're bullied. Uh, and so Alex gets in a fight with Lance and Lance is like, I'm gonna make you fight, and he chases him onto an abandoned real estate development, um, and pushes him in a moment I thought was actually pretty funny, which I thought, uh, or which Lance seemed to think that he had just killed Alex, and they both run away from the scene, which I thought was uh, amusing, and I think I would have enjoyed the movie uh, even better if it was actually a weird 
movie about uh, this kid trying to cover up a murder that he had done. But that sounds alas, terrible about that. I know. <laughs> but it's terrible in a way that I would enjoy. Yeah. Uh, uh, but so um, Alex is not dead after all and picks himself up and discovers the sword in the stone, which he uh, very quickly removes. And then um, he's the chosen king guy. Uh, he's visited by um, Merlin, who's like a teenager this time. He's also Patrick Stewart at certain points. Um, he tries to ingratiate himself into the high school and seems like a weirdo. And uh, they meet and Merlin's like, you gotta kill Morgana, who's uh, gonna come back and despoil the land unless you stop her and assemble a team of knights or whatever. And you can take it from here. <laughs> Is there anything else? No, that's it. Okay. And then they have to, like, defeat the evil thing. Yeah. That's basically the movie. Yeah. And he has, like, a... He's a single... He has a... He he is in a broken household, and that he only has a mom. That doesn't mean it's broken. Yeah, it does. Come on, man. Let's not shame the single mother. She's she's like a pretty bad mom. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, so... Yes, that's the movie. Um, What did you think of it, yo? Well, let me put it this way. Please. Go ahead. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Um uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. I thought it was I thought it was pretty solid and uh it had charm. Yeah. And and I think I would have uh appreciated it a lot as the target demographic, I think. As a as a child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh I think my reaction is a bit less positive than yours, so it's just kind of like, eh. Uh, I enjoyed it enough, but I also had the impression that I could very easily just walk out of the theater at any point, and I wouldn't have really missed anything, so... Um, there you go. You would have missed the rest of the film. Yeah, but I wouldn't have... It wouldn't have impacted my life at all. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, especially when uh, they had, like, the fake, you know, like, climax. Well, it would just... because you would be recording a podcast about it, and... I would have had to say, what, you didn't watch the whole film? And I'm, like, it, it would very demonstrably impact your life if you didn't no, finish wait. watching this film. That's not true. I would have lied to you and just said I had watched it and read the entire plot synopsis on something. Oh, okay. right. So it wouldn't have impacted my life. Um, but... Well, it would, because then you would have to lie. Yeah, and, like, I'm going to, I'm gonna this. like, actually kill you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um... Uh, but yeah, it didn't really, it didn't really click with me. Gotta admit, I didn't really find it that charming or amusing. It's kind of like whatever. Fucky. This is a solid three star movie. That's how I'll put it. Wow, that's pretty yeah. harsh. Yeah, I mean, it has some enjoyable bits, but by the time like after they go into the mysterious underground hole and kill Morgana, I was like, okay, is that it? And then I was really disappointed toward that there was a whole other climax behind it. Mm. So. I mean, that was, like, the least interesting part of the film to me was, like, their sort of uh, faux home alone, but in a school, and multiple kids, premise of fighting the evil monsters. I thought that was fine. Uh, I was a little a little bit similar in that, um, obviously, there was going to be another climax. That was, it was obviously set up that way. Yeah. And I'd seen the trailer, which uh, shows a lot of scenes from that final sequence. But... I was a little bit like I, I was a little bit trepidatious going into that final sequence because I didn't really want you know a CGI fest or something. But I'll get to that. I just didn't really I don't know. There's just something about it that just didn't compel me at all. 
Now I can imagine people thinking this is quite slight, right? Yes. And uh, perhaps forgettable after you've seen it. Uh-huh. That's definitely what my uh, reaction to it was. And uh, I think there's a similar sort of thing at play in Attack the Block. Although I think you'd like that more. Mm-hmm. In that there is like bits around the edges of it that are somewhat subversive and challenge the, the genre expectations. Yeah. But at its heart, it functions as, as what it is, you know, it functions yeah. as, as a work in that genre, um, unabashedly. Yeah. And um, doesn't necessarily distinguish itself as the most uh, technically accomplished version of that, right? No. But uh, I mean, I don't really care that much about, like, technical accomplishment. So, so yeah, I can imagine I can imagine a reaction to this, and to a lesser extent, attack the block. Just saying, you know, after a while, when you look at what it is, it's just it's fine, but you know, nothing that special. Yep, that's basically my reaction. <laughs> but there, there are a lot of things I really lack in the Kitty Whippy King. I think my I'll, I'll talk maybe I'll start with my uh, problems with it, and then okay. I'll move on to what I like. So you're gonna shit on it before you give it a sandwich. Is that how? Right. Is that what that means? That's right. Um, okay. I think my biggest problem with it, and it's not a huge issue, I will say, but I wasn't particularly sold on uh, our lead protagonist. Yeah. Played by Louis Ashbon Circus. I mean, it, I mean, let's be charitable and say it wasn't some sort of nepotistic uh, machination <laughs> that led to his casting. <laughs> I don't know about that. Well, because, for, I mean, there's a pragmatic reason why you might want someone like this at the center of a film. Yeah, someone sure, who has sure. experience working on film sets, even in the capacity of just being the son of a, an actor, right? Yeah. But I, I think he's got, I'm, I'm presuming he has some other experience as well. Like, I, I'm assuming he's acted before. And if you want, you know, you've got a kid and you need them to carry the film, then it's probably easier to do that with, someone who has some experience and exposure in this world than someone who doesn't. So, for example, his friend, Betters, played by Dean Chamu, uh, has no acting experience at all. And that kind of makes sense. Like, you can imagine for the lead role who needs to carry most of the weight, you have someone who you don't have to fuck around with too much and you can get on with it. Whereas the side character, you've got a bit more freedom. Yeah, for sure. But it does it does mean that I found him quite a boring protagonist so did i we'll, we'll spoil a little bit about the plot of this film or at least the attempt to redress the fantasy trope of inheritance uh, yeah. which uh joe cornish consciously attempted to subvert in this film by yeah. upturning the idea that the reason that he pulled the sword from the stone is is because he's you know um a descendant of king arthur right when in fact it turns out he's nothing of the sort, and the and the stories have been perpetrated by people who want to uh, maintain this illusion. Yeah, and where in fact the the sword actually only cares about whether you're pure of heart or some bullshit, right? Right. So it's the idea that anyone can can be this hero. I mean, on one some sense, I get the fact that it that makes sense for that story to be, focus on a little white kid, right? A little white boy. Yeah. Because you, you can't subvert it if it's it doesn't it already is. Yeah, like yeah. you'd assume you should, you could go okay. It's plausible that he's descended from what yeah, we presume is a white a king Arthur, right? Blobby white kid. Yeah, 
But then that doesn't that that kind of also dampens the idea that it could be anyone and it doesn't have to be a white a white boy. <laughs> yeah. So I think this movie might have been stronger if they found a way to do it with uh, at least either a woman or a non-white person. Yeah. Honestly, I think that would have made the message better. Yeah, I agree with you. Because it never really is like I don't know. Like Alex didn't really seem that exemplary of heart, you know. No. <laughs> it's just weird that they're like, okay, this kid dude just seems like you know like a decent enough person uh he's gonna be the inheritor of the sword for some reason i, I think it would be really tricky to make a, a kids film with the core cast being kids yeah so i think he does a decent job with what he's got and there's some really standout members of the cast which we'll get to but i think this movie would have been stronger with a, a better central performance or potentially retool the idea of the the central character a little bit yeah for sure um that's i think that's the thing that makes some of the sections of the film a bit boring and you could have it could have been overcome with a more interesting protagonist yeah because you're never that i mean we thought i was never that interested in this like uh, emotional arc so yeah i think that was my main issue with the film and there are there are stretches of the film where it just clicks into place like you'd expect yeah and it doesn't play out in, in a particularly interesting way um, for some of it. I was kind of I was kind of struck by how uh, generic the design was for everything. And I, I suppose that would be that's pro- that's probably a noteworthy point to make in contrast to Attack the Block, which had particularly inventive designs for the alien creatures. I thought. Um, yeah, and that's not so much repeated here. Like the yeah, the, some fiery guys. the look of the bad guys and stuff could be any shitty fantasy movie in the, in the CGI era, really. Yeah, and I thought the, I thought the um, speaking on on that too a bit, but I thought the the villain of the film was really uninteresting as well. Just mm-hmm. like, you know, just a evil person could replace the name Morgana with anything; it would have turned out exactly the same. She's yeah, she's not particularly fleshed out, and I, I think perhaps. There is a little bit of a lack of weight to everything. It kind of just washes over you and plays out in a, in, a, in a way that it doesn't sink in enough. Particularly as he said with the villain character, who doesn't, who really recedes from my memory yeah. after seeing the film. And she never really came across as much of a threat. You don't even really get a good look of, of, at her at all. It's weird how reduced she is in the film. I mean, I guess like the the CGI required to produce her would be too expensive to. Yeah. But then in that case, they should have just gone with something more practical. So, But there was some good bits, like when they were initially setting her up and they first show her, like, and she's, like, confined to a stump or something, like she's a plant thing attached to a stump yeah. before she becomes, like, a flying she's machine. Like a tree. Yeah, sure. That was more interesting and it seemed more practical and it seemed more like a spooky sequence in an 80s film than right. uh, some of the other bits. But once she once he flies out and becomes this monster, it's kind of boring. Um, another another negative. I kind of like the idea of what they were trying to do with the, or what at least Joe Cornish was trying to do with the allusions to Brexit, right? But it was a little bit it was a little bit too vague. Yeah. To it's, it's, work, especially like if you try to map it onto um, modern society or modern Britain, or like, is this really the point at which Britain is the most divided since the Arthurian times? Like, what about, like, World War Two, <laughs> Like, the Thatcher era, for instance. Like, mm. isn't that worse? I don't know. Yeah, that was a little strange. And it just sort of is a trend that I've noticed in blockbusters, which are very, like, um... 
the end is now. That's a that's been a recurring trope in, in blockbusters that I've watched semi recently, uh, especially like in the Predator and Venom. Those are the two that come to my mind anyway. I mean, I think this film is is, is consciously trying to function as a kids film that kids will enjoy and you can't really you can't really go too deep on the breakfast stuff for sure but uh, yeah but it felt a little bit toothless like i liked that it was there but it felt a little bit toothless it could have gone something i could i would have preferred it way more if it had they had been like something like and this is you know a lineage of people who have come and saved britain from division you know yeah yeah so it's just like trying to map out the current thing it's just it's so strange and also, like, I think the the moral is, is is summarized a little bit too neatly at the end and a little bit too explicitly by Patrick Stewart, basically saying that yeah. this is what the moral of the film is. Let me just state it for you. Before, before <laughs> we leave, before the film is ending, i just got to state yeah. this for you. Okay. <laughs> it's not just about killing dragons. It's it's about killing uh, Theresa May. I guess there's one dragon. <laughs> that would have been better. They should have cast, like, an older woman to play the Morgana character. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been way funnier. <laughs> but yeah, when you just sort of are like, unity is what we need. It doesn't really seem like... It's sort of a political message that anyone can watch and be like, yes, I agree with this, you know. Mm. In part, that's just Hollywood filmmakers. They don't want to scare off anyone by saying anything specific or taking any specific position, but, you know. Uh, yeah, I just think that, that he, he could have found a better way to deliver that message. Yeah, by just talking about it for the first 30 minutes of the movie. Just have like a Brexit documentary that plays. A montage of Brexit, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just say, just have like something that's like, and the UK has recently left the EU. Just have it be like a dystopian nightmare. And he said, like, you must unite the European Union <laughs> yeah, again. Yeah, exactly. Arthur, that is your <laughs> That'd be so better. That'd be so much better. <laughs> <laughs> By so much, I mean it'd be worse, but I would enjoy it more, I think. I would too. Okay, well, let's talk about the positives, I guess. There are some positives. I'm not, I don't want to be too down on this. It was like, it was basically enjoyable, I think, but it did have a lot of flaws. I would say on my side, the most of the flaws I mention are very handily outweighed by the positives, I would say. Like, I was overall Whoa. pretty uh, pleased with the experience. Wow, that, that's surprising to me. And, I mean, th- so there is there's a little bit of a problem and that, uh, that I should state up front. Um, maybe a conflict of interest, perhaps. But you are the kid he would be king. Well, leading up to this, I've been listening to Joe Cornish's voice. Oh, my God. On, like, a radio show for hours. <laughs> Why? Not as, like, preparation to watch this particular film, but just as, like, one of the things I listen to. Sure. So he used to be on a radio show with uh, his uh, previous comedy partner, Adam Buxton, who appears here as the uh, tour guide at Stonehenge. But they used to do a radio show. Mm-hmm. And uh, I found, like, a podcast feed What's that just... Uh, the Adam and Joe show. Oh, They're on a couple of different stations. And I found a podcast feed that's just uploaded the the radio show and just taken out the songs. Mm. And there's like like years of episodes. So it's that's great stuff. That's my filler podcast at the moment. Well sounds I'm going amazing. to the toilet and doing anything I don't want to focus on the ambient sound of my house what i'm trying to say is i have a lot of uh, i have a big stock of goodwill stored up for joe cornish so i will approach this film uh, in, in a more positive light than you will necessarily will this brainwashed you is what you're saying yes although i will say i didn't have necessarily that background when i saw attack the block and i re- still really liked that but anyway that aside i do think there is a lot to like in this film and we did talk about some of the problems with the cast, particularly Louis Ashbourne Circus, who, who I shouldn't say is bad by any stretch. Uh, 
kids can be insufferable, and he's not insufferable. So that's yeah, something. he's fine. Yeah, he's fine. It's just that it's it doesn't really it's carry. Boring. It doesn't really enough. cohere the film. Yeah, either. but um, I, I thought uh, Angus Imry did a really good job of. I agree. Um, capturing yeah, the no. tone of the film. Yeah, he's probably the best part of the, the film. And for I think me. he's got a big career ahead of him. So this is his first yeah. his first feature film. He's done a bit of TV and he's done theatre and radio plays and stuff like that. This is his first feature film. And I think I think you'll see him pop up a lot uh, after this. Unless I kill him. So in the same way that um, Attack the Block gave sort of John Boyega his start, I think this will do the same for Angus Emery. Maybe. He basically steals every scene he's in, and everyone else yeah, seems pretty boring. <laughs> yeah. So I think the film comes alive whenever he does anything. Yeah, I agree with that. He's very charming, and the magic that he does is enjoyable. Dean Chimu as as Betters was was fine. Uh, you could tell he was a non-professional actor, but he had charm, and um, I thought the other two were pretty good as well. But they didn't get that much to do. I thought they were completely fine. <laughs> Like Tom Taylor's Lance was pretty good. Rihanna Doris was fine. She didn't get that. She yeah, got, she the got least even to do, less, think, which is which was which was concerning. a problem. I think. Yeah, especially because this sort of runs against the ostensible message of the film. Yeah. What did you think of the cinematography? I thought it was kind of bland. I mean, it didn't it didn't stand out. I would say it wasn't it wasn't bad in light of fantasy worlds like Lord of the Rings and stuff. Yeah. I appreciate that it looks better than that. It's definitely restrained. That's about all I could say. Um, like at least, it, at least it allowed for different colors in the mix. Um, if you have you seen like any of the Lord of the Rings film now, like on TV or anything? Not for they look like a absolute ass. <laughs> like the color <laughs> grading that. and the sort of digital sheen that everything is given. It looks like garbage, honestly. Yeah, that's funny. I just found out that the, the it was shot by Bill Pope, who is best known for doing the Matrix movies. And also, uh, every one of Edgar Wright's films uh, after Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. So, presumably that's why he's working with Joe Gornish. Now, it, lo- it looks to me, I don't know much about uh, how the box office numbers pan out over time, but uh, is it performing underwhelmingly? I mean, so its budget was $59 million and its box office taken is $10.5 million. Yeah. But it only grows $7.25 million in the States. Well, so t- worldwide it's $100 million. So generally it tends to, I mean, it depends how many legs it have. And maybe because like, you know, January is a pretty weak month in terms of film. But I think that it probably won't recoup its budget. And even if it does, it'll only go over by a bit, which generally in Hollywood counts as a failure still. You factor in like marketing costs and such. So I feel and like... And I must say like, if, well. if I didn't uh, already know Joe Cornish and uh, appreciate what he might bring to this... If I just saw the trailer, I wouldn't want to see this film. It didn't look good That's funny. the trailer. Yeah, it did not. It looks like Attack the Block also didn't gross back its budget. So No, it didn't. It's presumably why it took him so long to make another film. I mean, not necessarily. I think I think Attack the Block, uh, take away the box office, I think it was a success for his career. Right. It showed people what he was capable of. And uh, I think he did have a lot of offers in the wake of um, Attack the Block. Maybe. Well, because I've heard him talk about it, and he said he actually intentionally kind of took a backseat a little bit. He didn't want to rush into other projects um, and potentially get, you know, over his head after his first film. We we should also say that he didn't just 
sit on his hands and, and co-write some screenplays in the intervening eight years. He also went through production hell with... Uh, Snow Crash. Sn- Snow Crash, yeah. Yeah. Which was an adaptation of the novel, the sci-fi novel. Which I've read. Uh, okay, so do you have anything else you have to say about The Kitty Woody King? I will say that uh, I really like the score a lot. Me too. I, th- I thought the score was, was really good. Uh, it sort of mixed sort of synth with a traditional sort of fantasy orchestral score, which yeah, kind it of... was pretty successful. It kind of reflected the film's slightly... Um, slight, gently subversive take on the yeah. genre. It was kind of like a... It was reflecting the fact that the film was, was mixing in different ingredients, but also being a traditional fantasy. For sure. Um, at, yeah, I thought it worked really well, and there's, there's some sequences that are really elevated by it. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, it's a really, really good score, I think. Uh, credited to Electric Wave Bureau. Yeah, apparently I've done nothing else. Mm. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Sorry. Oh, that's funny. Electric Wave Bureau has done several songs, did several songs for both of the Paddington movies. There you go. Yeah. Maybe that great musical number. Now, on the uh, so on the CGI and uh, design of it, so I think we can agree the CGI is not amazing and the design's not particularly noteworthy. No. But I will say that I, I do appreciate the way uh, Cornish has handled the CGI. I never got to that point where I got that CGI overload that I was fearful of from the trailer and the upcoming final battle. It feels, whether, whether this was a case of um, budget limitations in terms of how much CGI they could actually afford, um, that, that could be part of it. But I think that, I think there is a deliberate attempt on, on Joe Cornish's part to kind of treat the CGI a little bit like a limited practical effect. Yeah. And I, he, like, there's scenes where he shies away from showing full on shots of the CGI stuff and actually focus on bits around it. So it feels like he's treating it as if it was something very limited that you could only shoot from certain angles and you kind of shoot around it a little bit. That, that seemed like a deliberate sort of evocation of the style of 80s adventure films that this is very indebted to and yeah, I thought that, sure. that actually worked really well and it um, took it took the edge off some of the dodgier CGI aspects I think I, I don't know I don't actually agree with you or I, I didn't find that to be true for me anyway uh, it just, I don't know like it whereas with those the practical effects that supposed to be referencing they're like sort of shot that way in order to make them look plausible right yeah. And it's aided by the fact that, you know, there's an actual thing there. But for these, I was just like, yeah, it's just a CGI horse guy. Okay. I never, like, really uh, had that effect. No, but I think the upshot of doing it that way is that you get less um, focus on the quality of the CGI, right? Sure. I think that's why I... it's a smart approach. Yeah, but I don't think it was that successful in disguising the quality of the CGI, so... But if you compare it to what this perhaps could have been, I think this is the more successful approach. I mean, I yeah, certainly I didn't get that feeling of like this is too much CJ nonsense. Well, it didn't feel like it. Oh, well, except for like the movie, the end scene. And I thought that was uh, better than I was expecting it was going to be, based on what I'd seen in the trailers and stuff. I thought that was actually fairly succinct and contained. To illustrate my point a little bit, in that final sequence, um, one of the things they're doing when they get all the school on side and stuff, and they use ropes to constrain the the monster thing. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the shots are like just the better's character like pulling on the rope. Yeah. In a const- in a constrained shot, and you don't actually see what's on sure, the, the monster. Of the rope. Yeah. That yeah, yeah. that kind of thing. 
which I think is rare with this kind of CGI showcase. Usually you would, they would like milk that shit and like show a long shot of all the kids. Well, I wonder how, I wonder how much that was a, a function of its budget. Yeah, I wonder, but I do think that uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that was a deliberate choice on, on Cornish's part, at least to well, some extent. We will never know because I'm going to kill both of us. How's that sound? Sounds good. Okay. Um, okay, well, let's see. The kid who would be king. What do you think of Patrick Stewart? He was fine. I mean, he didn't have much to do. He just had to be Patrick Stewart for a couple of moments. Uh, I had that same problem um, that I had when we watched uh, Green Room. Mm. Where I was more interested in, like, what if this were a Star Trek episode? <laughs> I don't think he functions as a performance in this film. I think he has like, a different function. It's just to bring the weight of Patrick Stewart to yeah. that character and have that contrast between his older self and, you know, Angus Emery. He almost doesn't even have to say anything. Which I think was fine. I don't think it needed to be more than that. Um, okay. Anything else? Or is that all we have for The Kitty Would Be King? Uh, that's pretty much all. I would, uh, I would recommend it. I would say. Uh, I would say, yeah, you could do worse. But I didn't really like it that much. It was okay. All right. Well, shall we move on to the uh, other segment of this shitty podcast? Bonus features. Bonus. Bonus features. Bonus features. Bonus. Bonus. Uh, so I mostly rewatched films that I already seen this week. So I don't really have too much new things to say. I don't remember if I talked about. Uh, I guess I did. So I rewatched The Rainy Dog and Shinjuku Triad Society. I watched both of them again, both commentary tracks. Uh, both of which are pretty good commentary tracks. I have to say by Tom Meese, um, who I wrote a paper about Takashi Miike last semester. Right, mm-hmm. I wrote his book about Takashi Miike and I hated it. Um, and I was like, this is garbage because it was like very like you know. It's very poppy, it's just sort of like not that interesting. Um, but I actually find his uh, presence on these commentary tracks to be very uh, enjoyable to listen to. Mm-hmm. Um, and he does a fairly decent job, like giving background stuff about Mike and sort of the sea that he's coming out of and that sort of thing. Um, so I guess I like his voice better than I like his writing, which is actually true for a lot of people. I think, now that I think about it. Like podcasters, for instance. Yeah, but I did watch two other films, one of which was actually for the IMDb project, which is up since we were going to do this episode, but <laughs> I didn't bother to do anything, so fuck you. Uh, I still haven't looked at that list. Really? Yeah. I'll have to do it. You're so fucking this, lazy. This for next episode. Jesus, do you, I mean, I guess the idea of this is just to take as long as until the... Um, until we die. But... I watched Spirited Away, uh, the Hayao Miyazaki film, uh, which was a good, but a surprise. Yeah, it's very charming and um, just brilliantly conceptualized, and the universe is just so interesting and and well designed, and it's just beautiful and fun and great. It's just amazing, I think. Yeah, it's good. Definitely one of their studio Ghibli's triumphs for sure. Yeah, though most of their films are triumphs, as far as I can tell. Yeah, I think my favorite are Spirited Away and My Neighbor Totoro. I think my two favorite. I think my favorite is The Wind Rises, actually. Which I'm interested in seeing. It's very good. I saw it in theaters, That's actually. It's his most personal film. Yeah. Except for the next one, which he's making right now. 
Is he actually doing another one now? Yep. I think this is like the third time he's been like, I finished this film, now I'm going to retire. He's made he probably would, f- like finishing an animated film as demanding as, as these would be to make, probably would make you feel like you're, you're done at the end of yeah. the process. But he always starts up a new one, so I think he's just going to keep making movies until he dies. If you want me to be honest. Um, but I could be wrong about that. Um, but yes, he is making a film that's in production right now, which I think is coming out next year. Uh, called How Do You Live? And it's based on a novel by someone. I think he should just do, you know, that clip of him sort of berating that guy. Yeah, the guy who designed like the, uh, the um, uh, what do you call it? Um, algorithmically generated animation. Yeah. That's, that was great. It's a great clip. He should just be on a TV show where he goes around and, and does that. <laughs> and berates everyone in Japan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, like the producers introduce him to like new technologies that they know he'll hate. And he <laughs> yeah. No, I love that. Um, there was a new documentary about him that came out last year, actually, that I wanted to watch, but it was only in theaters for a really small amount of time, which it was what that clip was from, I think. Anyway, so uh, I watched uh, Spirited Away, which is definitely uh, probably going to be at the top of my initial 50, I think, probably. It was very enjoyable. But I mean, again, again I haven't like watched the Star, uh, the Star Shank Redemption one. The Shawshank Redemption, which is obviously the greatest film of all time, so... Obviously, yeah. Um, what else did I watch? I watched another film, I can't remember. I watched Can You Ever Forgive Me, which is pretty charming. Uh, a little film about art forgery, which I is a topic that I always quite enjoy hearing about. So, has a very good performance by um, Melissa McCarthy and by Richard E. Grant. So, very enjoyable little film. And that's it, that's all I watched. Oh, I, I, yeah, I rewatched If Beale Street Could Talk again. Of the movies? Yeah. Because my girlfriend wanted to see it. That's out here, actually. I should watch that. Oh, yeah, it's really good. Okay, well, uh, goodbye. Oh, bro.